on this film. Levitated by the human touch. Antonio's galloping forward, here's the pass. Antonio's through, chance to fall, what a goal! What a brilliant strike by Mikhail Antonio! Hello and welcome to another edition of the Knees Up Mother Brown West Ham podcast. I am joined, as always, by my two villains, my two co-hosts. Riddle me this, it's Jack Elderton. Is he a man? Is he a penguin? No, it's Callum Goodall. <laughs> I told you it was my worst one, yeah, and that's why I like it so much. Doesn't really, doesn't really mean anything. Uh, this week we have two games to look back on. The Via. Oh, there you go. I've already made that mistake. Start again. This week we have two games to look back on: the Villa and Sevilla, and a focus on two defeats on the spin, but it's back to winning ways against Villa. Uh, one nil in Spain, but the tie is still on. Um, often here I would add some comments and such, but for today I would like to extend mine and our condolences to uh, the family and friends of the man most Knees Up Mother Brown users would know as Rumford or Chaz. Um, I never met Rumford myself, but knew of him through the site and I've read many of the kind of warm memories of a man who, who loved the club, um, but more importantly seemed a helpful, passionate and unselfish kind of soul who, who would truly embody why people say things like the West Ham family when you're talking about fans and our fans, etc. He was a uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not the, the person to go to, but certainly some of the mods have been having conversations about Ron being in different places than they expected him to be because he was helping someone with a ticket or with travel or something like that that he didn't need to be doing and was choosing to do, which is a testament to him. Um, so I hope the bubbles and some much more good fortunes follow you uh, wherever you go now, Ron. Uh, rest in peace. If you would like to get in touch, all correspondence can be sent to either the email address, which is podcast at KUMB.com. There's also the forum thread at KUMB.com. You'll find us, the podcast one. And you can tweet the podcast where you can tweet the boss at KUMB.com. Uh, a lot to talk about this week. Two games. Um, one narrow defeat after, well, after another narrow defeat, I suppose. Two in a row on the spin with Liverpool and Sevilla. But then back to winning ways at home against v- uh, Villa, Cal. Um, what did you think of the game? What did you see from that other than a Craig Dawson at the back, world-class, yeah. kind of 99 FIFA type player that he's become now? Exactly. Absolute masterclass. I've seen the English Maldini being thrown about on Twitter, so I think we'll <laughs> run with that one. Um, but yeah, it was uh, dry. The first half was just dull as dishwater, really. And the second half wasn't much more exciting. But ultimately, I think the main thing was that we needed to get a win. Um and we did, and that was the main takeaway. I was meant to be going, but I had to pull out at the last minute. And to be honest, with the with the way the game went, it might not have been the worst thing in the world. <laughs> save my save, save my train my train money for the uh, Thursday night game, which will be yeah. a lot more fun. Yeah, three goals, but it it felt like not a lot. I guess I guess it's, it's there's things you'd want to talk about as a West Ham kind of fan podcast that you can't analyze. So I will do a quick that Yarmolenko goal. And as you were there, Jack, it makes sense to talk to you. I mean, it, there was a certain outpouring of emotion in the ground after the goal and when he came on but it 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 was in quite a unique moment yeah definitely completely unique moment um I've never experienced anything like that as a West Ham fan and um and it was lovely um really emotive uh moment really pleased for him um and it, it was great to see the amount of support he had um in the crowd in the ground um when he came on uh, and and then when he scored and that sort of outpouring of emotion was a really lovely thing to be a part of i know paul has written uh, like a week or two ago paul walker has written for 
for the site a kind of a, an article about once you're a hammer you're always a hammer and I suppose that's where that's what you got with that once he was part of us he was he was kind of going to be supported in that way through such a difficult time and it was it yeah it was unique in seeing a kind of an outpouring of emotion it's just from one man I guess at anything uh, for a goal not really much to analyse in terms of emotions. That's certainly not my uh, my forte. So we'll go football. Um, and it, it was you, you kind of the Dawson thing. I mean, Franz Dawson Bauer. I called him in my uh, in my write up. I think I prefer English Maldini. But <laughs> it, not not just the kind of quality of the passes, but what it did to disrupt what Villa were doing. Cal was was really important. Yeah, his uh, well, it was just an all round. Um brilliant performance really but in particular his uh, pass completion is what stood out to me obviously as the resident numbers guy went through and uh, I mean generally speaking he's not the best passer in the world <laughs> uh, usually around the 70% mark and I think his overall pass completion for the game was 91% um, and he completed five of seven long balls uh, which is about a 30% uptick um, from his 40% average which is just a, a crazy improvement and I don't know whether it was just well it's probably a combination of the two things of it just being a good day for him because this performance bled over into his defensive performance as well where he completed all of his defensive duels and had uh, just shy of 10 ball recoveries which is uh, really impressive anyway um, but then I think the flip side of that is tactical um, decisions from Moyes as well obviously Villa set up in a very narrow shape this is something Jack's definitely more qualified to talk about and we'll go on to in a bit. But um, Moyes has obviously instructed Dawson to look for those long balls and pick out the much more advanced fullbacks uh, to get past the sort of congested middle of the park with the likes of Coutinho, McGinn, Ramsey, etc. in there. I mean, we, we've spoken about the kind of sudden uptick in... Uptick, I think I've used that word I've never used before. I mean, kind of line-breaking <laughs> passes. I know you kind of... It always surprised. It feels like every week we mention a line-breaking Dawson pass. But these these spread wide passes, I guess, I guess a bit different. And it, it's the it's not just the kind of the idea to do them and the tactical. Actually, he was he was delivering them at pace and with a fizz as well, which means they were not waiting. You were not readjusting positions. He was getting them in there quick to to take advantage of the space. Jack. Well, there's one pass that was particularly brilliant where he floated it over the top of Matty Cash for Ben Rama to attack yeah, the space in behind. And Ben Rama's first touch was really poor, but. That was a fantastic pass and, and one of a number that, that you quite rightly describe as being perfectly weighted. And, and um, I think it's it's strange to, to come onto the podcast really knowing what Craig Dawson has been like as a West Ham player and as a player beforehand and say that, you know, Kurt Zuma did a lot of switches in this game as well. And his were much uh, more how you describe with players waiting to receive the ball and then being pressed by the time the ball's actually dropped. Whereas Dawson's hitting them perfect um, so that people can run onto them straight away and, and receive it at speed and, and, and under less pressure. Um, so brilliant for him. I think generally his passing has improved in the last couple of weeks. I think he was quite good um, against Sevilla, some some really nice balls through the line um, against Sevilla. Um, and actually, in some ways, I, can't, I kind of feel that it benefited him a little bit to not have Antonio on the pitch hitting the channels because he cannot often be punished statistically um, for, for being the player that is often uh, releasing those balls up the channels for Antonio to, to get onto. And that's not an easy past the play you're trying to hit a very small space over the top of the defense with the right amount of weight for Antonio to be able to get round the defender and get onto it and if Antonio can't win that duel then you get punished for the for the um for the misplaced pass with Yarmolenko on the pitch he wasn't we didn't really look to hit the ball over the top of Villa's defense at all so it allowed for some some more um 
a different option hitting like Cal said the fullbacks when they're they're pushed higher up the pitch and, and a, a different kind of pass which he executed brilliantly I suppose the difference in those passes well is you're, you're you're hitting a target whereas those ones you're, you're looking to put it into space and see what happens and it, it opens up that it's almost, you, sometimes those ones you don't really mind losing as well because you're, you're kind of forcing them to clear and stuff it's a, very, it's a different kind of skill but it was it was about making that whip wasn't it and we used we I mean we certainly used the wings I say wings we certainly used one wing, an awful, an awful, awful lot. We often do. We've spoken about it before, so we won't kind of go too far into that, um, Gal. But we did. We, we were we were looking to spread and kind of then attack centrally again from those positions, weren't we? And take advantage of the space that I guess they offer in a quite a, a weird system where they're not really playing with. They're not really using any wingers. They've got a striker there who doesn't want to go out wide either. So it was, I suppose, clever management to exploit the gaps. Yeah, I think so. I think this is definitely one that we can chalk down as a as a Moyes win. I wouldn't maybe go so far as a masterclass. We've seen some of those, but maybe not this weekend. But um, yeah, that sort of proactive decision making and and I suppose scouting prior to the game, looking at how Gerard's setting up his team and that sort of narrow tendency, and then making decisions on field to exploit those. Uh, I suppose weaknesses because we won as a result of it. So I guess you can call them that, or, or certainly gaps. Um, and yeah, we did it to great effect. And I think. Um, We'll come on to individuals in a bit, um, but yeah, the the like you said, we don't want to go into it too much, but definitely that left side emphasis, which I think was a, probably exacerbated by the fact that obviously Bowen was out, so the 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 outlet that we usually go to when we do go down that side wasn't there, so we kind of lent on what we were comfortable doing, um, and which was only made even more comfortable because we didn't have the blanket on the other side. So yeah, it was something that I've been annoyed with previously, but. I think it was probably more of a pragmatic left-handed heavy approach this time than a, uh, otherwise, basically. Well, you're also looking on the right side, which is four now. So he doesn't really want to play on the wing, doesn't really have any pace, wants to cut in, but it's a difficult difficult area to cut in when you're cutting onto a weak foot. And with Johnson, who is still as good as his defensive performance has been, relatively tentative ball player. So it goes out left. And it's, it's often finding one man, um, much maligned on this podcast. And in, right now we're going to be in a situation where the man I used to call Ben Rama's biggest fan is going to have to, def- well, not defend, defend his viewpoint against my passion, for not passion, but how much I thought Ben Rama played really, really well yesterday. And you weren't, from your rewatch, as keen, Jack, on his performance. I wasn't particularly keen first time around and even less keen on, on the rewatch. Um, I think uh, he had some really good moments in the game um, and was instrumental to both goals. Um, I really like uh, with the first goal, Johnson's run dragging Cash away and giving him the space to, to step inside and, and play that ball into, into Yarmolenko. My feeling, though, with both wingers in this game, and I think there's a little bit more of an excuse for Fornals, as we've described, he's not particularly comfortable on that side and, and he's not really a, a direct threat as a dribbler so much, particularly not from the flank. Um, whereas I, I felt with Ben Rama, there was less of an excuse for, for not um, attacking Cash so much. Um, you know, Villa often leave themselves, particularly on that side as well, because you've got Ings recovering down that side uh, for, for most of the game, who I thought was awful um, and have often thought um, similar since he's been at Villa, that he's been really, really poor um, and partnered with Watkins in this game and being the player that often, because you want Watkins up there for the counter-attack if you do get the ball forward quickly, you want someone with the speed to to hit space behind Dawson or whatever. So Ings retreating down that right side and providing cover, it's kind of pretty weak in there. Um, and if you can get round Cash, you're attacking Callum Chambers, who I, I 
don't think is that brilliant either. Um, so I think there was a lot of opportunity to to attack that space in behind Cash um, and dribble at him. Um, and I didn't feel Ben Rummer did that very much. I think he started really well and you saw it in the first five minutes or first five, ten minutes and it was really exciting. And he worked that chance for himself where he uh, beat Ramsey on the left-hand side and, and, and took his shot. And I thought if he continues that in this game, he's going to be a real threat and the game suits him perfectly, suits his attributes perfectly. Um, and then he started to misplace a couple of passes and the confidence just disappeared um, until the first assist. And he was very, very passive, looked to cycle the ball backwards a lot. Um, and that the same on the other side, you know, Fornells was passing backwards as well. So you were getting both wide men into the 1v1s versus fullbacks and, and neither really creating anything uh, from those positions. And, and then you're needing the fullbacks to do something. And uh, Cresswell did an okay job of that on the left. Johnson didn't really offer anything at all. So I, I uh, going forward on the right-hand side until he got moved to the left. So um, yeah, a little bit disappointed with both wingers, but obviously the caveat that, that the assist for the first is good. Um, although I would credit Johnson a lot for the movement and the second assist is brilliant. Fantastic cutback for Fornells. I just I felt I feel my defense of almost that that is you've you've got the um question marks, you've got the reasoning, I guess, why four nows is struggling over there. My defense was more on the static nature of the players he was playing with. And a little bit Antonio, who I've actually I've not really been too had too much of an issue with that kind of way he drifts wide. It doesn't bother me. I think players do these things. I think it's everyone knows he's gonna do it. So it's not like he's doing something against orders. I thought he was often too static on the kind of diagonal bit of the box which meant that Ben Rama, every time he made space, was looking up to a man he didn't really want to pass to because he wasn't in a good position. And I thought Cresswell was not doing the overlaps enough in the way that Johnson did fantastically that opened up the space. I, I, but I would agree, and speaking earlier actually, that Ben Rama should, and he needs to adapt his game to go down that left side more. Even if he's not very good at it, even if uh, I mean, he did it once in the second, it might have been the second or first half, but late in the first half or in the second half, and he just blasted it off with his left but you have to, it's just an old trick, isn't it? Your defender has to think you're going to do it so that he leaves you enough space to do what maybe you want to do down the right. Um, but then those those assists were brilliant and kind of game-winning, even if touch maybe a touch lucky that Yarmolenko was so good in the control of the pass. I, I would credit him with doing something that was quite direct and pacey, which is often, it feels like we don't do with Fornells and maybe Lanzini, who occasionally will look for maybe two or three passes more when a one would do, which is what I enjoyed about kind of Ben Ramos. It would be interesting having said all those things where you look at a man who obviously is so desperate to shift onto his right, whether he could do that on the right and he could have exposed those gaps around the outside. But he's probably, he probably a little bit cow wants to cut in and do the Hollywood curl as well, doesn't he? Yeah, I think that's really how he earned his corn, really. Like at Brentford, he was, he earned a reputation of being renowned for cutting inside and bending goals into the top corner and uh, that's yeah, pretty much what earned him his move. Um, so I went, uh, yeah, I mean, I think if he consistently got like two assists every game and then some of his other numbers were uh, less than favourable, um, but it was on a consistent basis, you'd kind of forgive it in the sense of like you can carry a luxury player if they carry you, but I don't think he does it often enough. Um, but ultimately he's got the two assists that have led to the two goals, so hesitant to be too heavy on him um but yeah I think the uh, the idea about him being deployed out on the right was something that I'm half expected before the game um but I guess uh, just because of exploiting those wide areas you, you kind of think oh well having someone who's stronger foot is out and you can spread the pitch even more um but obviously that didn't happen but I think as well 
he really does need to learn how to hit that left channel for as long as Cresswell's in the team because on the right you've got Bowen who likes to cut in a lot but that's fine if you've got someone like Sufal or Johnson who's quite happy to be mobile down that right flank and offer overlapping runs but if you've got someone who's Cress like Cresswell who's not a, not a mobile left back by anyone's standards he's not going to hit those overlaps so the kind of emphasis is on you to try and hit someone in a deeper position and then you to get into that almost towards the byline which is something we really very rarely see on that left side because both Fournals and Ben Rama rarely get to the byline and Cresswell absolutely doesn't preferring to obviously hit his crosses from deep positions so I think looking forward maybe and this is something we're going to need to sign anyway and address in the summer is a, a younger sort of more mobile left back and then we might start to see the best of Ben Rama because the emphasis won't be on him to hit those sort of hit that final third he can kind of hang around in the areas he likes to offload the ball to an overlapping left back and then he can occupy a more narrow position and, and get the ball onto his favourite right foot so I think maybe yeah, it's something that can be developed on in the future definitely I think as you see the ploy and where it works is in that cross in the first half where Suchek gets down low and just heads wide which is why Cresswell kind of takes up those deeper positions because he does have the quality. So it's it's, it's an unfair criticism in a way because actually he's doing the thing that he knows is going to get him the best. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I just think, I, I think the, the point Cal made at the start of that um, was, was really pertinent, which is that I, we, obviously we don't expect Ben Ramos to get two assists per game, but um, I think his general performance was very consistent with what it normally is, which is in and out, some great direct moments, but actually... Um, overall, some really um, attack stunting giveaways. Um, yeah, there was a yeah, yeah. between the 35th and 60th minute where he was averaging something like 50% um, pass completion, which uh, isn't acceptable um, f- at all. And I think, yeah, if he gets to assist, then it glosses over all of that, and you say that the, the moments are the thing that's important, and that's what's won us the game. But um, but he's not doing that on a on a no. regular enough basis to excuse the, the the consistent kind of periods within games where he just goes missing in terms of his accuracy. Um, As, but I think you, know, it, uh, you wouldn't have to be a long time listener of this podcast to know that we don't uh, let him get away with those things when he when he hasn't <laughs> produced two assists. It's, I suppose slightly frustrating is we have a, quite a few players who do have those periods of going missing. Um, on the other hand, Villa have one very very obvious key kind of creative player. Um, who they'd want to get in dangerous positions and basically didn't get in any dangerous positions with the ball, Gal. Yeah, yeah. So we had a look at... Uh, this is Coutinho, by the way, for anyone that couldn't oh, work yeah. that out. From I forgot to do that bit. <laughs> <laughs> Who's obviously been... And I meant Callum uh, Chambers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, obviously he's been a bit of a star since arriving uh, at Villa and he's been in- integral to their uh, form when they have played well. Uh, but against us, he was really not afforded any time on the ball in, in front of our uh, penalty box, really. So we had a look at where he received the ball uh, throughout the game. He, he received the ball 38 times. Uh, of those, only nine touches came in the final third. And honestly, when you look at the map, obviously you guys don't have that in front of you, but I would say only two of those nine are really in the final third. The rest are very debatable, like on essentially midfield, but just by definition of where the lines are drawn, it qualifies. So I think the fact that your main attacking outlet and arguably biggest goal threat as well in recent weeks is only receiving 23% of his possessions in the opposition final third, that's just uh, poor for them, but also on the flip side, testament to how well we handled his threat and managed to nullify um, his attacking output. Is that, Jack, do you think something we did? Is that all... 
kind of, did we manage that game to make sure he did that? Was he going there because he was trying to get on it to overdo things? And we, because I'd say we let him get that ball deep, didn't we? We didn't go and force him and follow him. We kind of seemed happy to go, but off, off you go, mate. You can't score against us there. Yeah, precisely that. I think he was too keen to drop in. I think he gave up on on, on occupying the, the spaces between the lines too easily um, and just wanted to come and get on the ball. And frankly, him being on the ball with with few options around him, 40 yards away from the goal is no threat whatsoever. Um, and we were proven, uh, or Moyes definitely in terms of his set, was proven right in allowing him to have uh, possession in deeper areas. Um, but I do think, you know, that's just a, a system thing that's that's made that happen, really. It's play, playing a 4-1-4-1, as we did for the long periods of the game, with Rice uh, patrolling that that space between the lines. It's very difficult for Coutinho to ever uh, pick up the ball with with space, uh, in, in any space or with any time. And um but yeah, I think the key thing from for him, from his perspective and for Villa's perspective is he, you don't then just abandon and say, well, I'm just going to come deep and get the ball all the time and not not actually do anything with it. You've just got to stay and occupy that area. Maybe you're not going to get 20 receptions of the ball in a game that you might have had in the last few games, but um, you, you might get two or three and then it's about doing something um, important when when you do get those opportunities. And because he wasn't there, because he abandoned that space, um, Pretty much from the from the twentieth minute onwards, they created virtually nothing. Um, after no. that. Obviously, we've switched last two games. I'd say obviously Rice was missing against Liverpool, so yeah, two games, and we've definitely gone to a, a much more defined sitting role for Rice. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, you're seeing much more of a much more use of a four one four one or four five one out of possession. <laughs> Um, with Lanzini dropping in uh, and forming a, a midfield three to block up the spaces in central areas. Um, and I think that's benefited us uh, in a lot of ways. It does present some issues and we'll come to those when we talk about Sevier and, and, and talk about um, Jules Kunde's performance and how that affected us in that game and how we can look, look to deal with that in in the return leg. But uh, particularly here, it, it really helped in, in terms of allowing the centre-backs a little bit more more time to, to spit a little bit wider and, and contribute to build-up. Um, it allowed the full-backs to get higher in a way that we don't always do. Um, it allowed us to stretch the pitch much better. It took some of the passing load off of Rice, which I think is a good thing. Um, I've said it in the threads a few times now, and I'm not sure that I've said it on the podcast, but his progressive passing isn't uh, what it's made out to be. He's a great carrier. Um, but but the, the further, the deeper we've got into the season, the, the more his passing has sort of regressed to the mean, which is what we know from Rice, which is that he can uh, break the lines, but he doesn't attempt it very often. Um, and I, th- I think that's the thing really um, that we want to see from him going forwards to for him to really develop into that eight role. Um, but yeah, he's at home uh, a little bit deeper and there's a reason why he's always in that role for England. Um, he's, he's an elite defensive midfielder. He patrols that space brilliantly um, and and denies any kind of time to, to turn on the ball. Um, and he did that here and, and that's the main thing he can offer to us. I don't think he's a brilliant uh, progressive passer. So, And he's still able to, to, to when he does intercept in, in those deeper areas, he's still able to carry from there. He's still able to use his thrust from there. And you see that for the second goal. Um, I don't think you lose that from dropping him at one slot deeper. Um, so yeah, slight change in system, uh, slight change in the way you press as a result, um, a little bit more more passive in terms of pressing the centre-backs. We're not really doing that. In the, in the, we haven't done that in the last two games, but um, certainly has benefited us on the ball. You're not going to get big bursting channel runs over the top kind of muscle 
muscular man up front for Andre Yarmolenko. Um, but it, it, it helped the kind of dynamic of what we did as well and how we could counter, I suppose, as well. Yeah, he, he instead of spinning in behind the centre-backs, he was much more comfortable coming deeper and, and receiving in, in sort of just wide of centre. But even even when he did it in the centre, he did a very good job of winning uh, a couple of free kicks on turnovers and, and getting us up the pitch. I think he did a very good job of, of playing through the middle, not something that we've really seen from him up to this point. Um, but it, it was his all-round game that I was impressed with, more than just the goal and saying, OK, he's come on and it's a lovely moment and he's done really well and he's put a, uh, it's a beautiful finish, etc., etc. I think his all-round performance was really strong um, and he was very secure in possession up there um, and I think the thing I'd probably uh, be, be most impressed with was his movement for the for the um, for the second goal where he drags Mings away from Fornells to open that space so there's enough room for Fornells to run onto it and slot home and it's very simple but it's just classic number nine play where you stay in the in the cover shadow or say sorry stay in the shadow uh, of Mings where he can't see you and then make the burst uh, and force him to drop a couple of yards deeper to open that space so that was really um, good from him and a really positive all-round performance and and maybe in games like this where you've got that slightly more narrow thing and, and, and a team that that aren't really being impacted too badly by Antonio you could see some use for him as a, as a number nine um, at Premier League level um, I think he's been used there in, in cup games but I, I'm not sure that he'd be too comfortable in that role he hasn't looked too comfortable in that role against the low block but but certainly against the back four and a team that are actually trying to attack you maybe there's more opportunities for him to to have a positive impact as a number nine yeah I suppose it's 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 back to that old kind of way that we used to sometimes you'd get that slight uh old game with Haller looked useful when Antonio was near him and I guess it's different types of players doing different types of things especially if Really, they don't care that Antonio is stretching them around because they're just happy to have him not in the area. You get yeah, that well, goal as well. We haven't seen that kind of combination before, have we? Oh, I've seen like Yarmolenko with Bowen and and the and the sort of standard um, forwards around him in a four-two-three-one, but in more of a four-three-three with Lanzini, Ben Rama, Fornals all floating around in the sort of more central spaces. He looked much much better in that position. Yeah, he was kind of the players to past him and he is a good he's a good his technical ability isn't he's kind of never really been in doubt has it yeah um speaking of tech players whose technical ability has been in doubt which is a really harsh way of saying <laughs> actually that three at the back near the end could have been costly <laughs> yeah well i just wanted to talk about this briefly before we move on which is that i i, I think villa hadn't really created anything uh, from the 20th minute onwards and looked incredibly uh, uncomfortable around the box once they got towards the final third about how they would actually create any opportunities. Their chances in the second half came from set pieces and they didn't really create very much from open play. And I felt that us denying them that space in front of the box, as we described with Coutinho and him struggling to really operate between the lines was the key reason we were so comfortable defensively. So to take a midfielder out and to put a defender on to deal with one striker when they brought Bailey on and move to a 4-2-3-1 was, to me, a very odd substitution. I think Noble's there, and if you want to bring on fresh legs, then there's a player there who can plug the same space in midfield and make sure that you're denying the same spaces around the box. Um, and you kind of see the evidence of it not working brilliantly when you've got three defenders all trying to block Wendy's shot, and then when it's cut back, there's just no midfielder to block up the space on the edge of the box. So a, a strange decision that undermined what was going very well up until that point. Beat Plymouth in a pre-season friendly 6-1 and Paolo was throwing bottles in the dressing room after the game. If there's ever been a goalkeeper who's not mad, Jimmy Walker picked up this slack. On the serious issues of the day, we stand shoulder to shoulder. 
Newcastle and West Ham in there together. I mean, it must have aged you. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not easy. It's, it, it, it's kept my heart. Let's say it kept my heart racing. So maybe it kept me young in a certain sense as well. <laughs> yeah, you're always fit because of the anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> you and I may never live in a in a in a, in a society that is completely equal. Our our most noble calling is to work towards having someone in not too distant a future enjoy that that equality that, that we strive for. On this special edition of the KUMB West Ham podcast, we talk to Shaka Hislop ahead of UN Anti-Racism Day and Stand Up to Racism's national demonstration against racism. Listen now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube or your podcast listening app of choice. So yeah, off across to Spain, you know, away from the Birmingham visitors and across to Spain and the much more glamorous uh, surroundings. It was a, I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a hell of a game to be kind of even anticipating as a West Ham fan. I, I don't think I felt that childishly excited in a day for a West Ham game for quite a while now. Um, and we didn't blow it. We, we're, we're behind. It's halfway through the time. We did blow it. And we, we didn't really look outmatched either, other than maybe a kind of five, 10 minute period. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment of, of the fixture. I think it will come on to, well, we might not even come to the goal. There's not much to break down, but it was just a, a stupid goal to concede um, for various reasons. I think we created ample chances to at least get a draw. Um, and yeah, the, you have to just remember that they have got a very good team at the end of the day. We're, we're in these ties now. like we're, we're going toe-to-toe with a team that's won the European Cup six times and they've got a squad full of internationals. And it, this isn't like scraping a win or, or losing narrowly against, I don't know, a Watford or a, a, one of the middling Premier League teams. This is a, a, an elite European club. So it, yeah, it was great. We're still in it. I'm really excited for the, the fixture on Thursday night. Um, I'll be there and I think we're, yeah, more than set to take it to him and the crowd should hopefully be rocking all day. <laughs> we'll see. You never know. Um, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully it's, it, it's another night to remember at the very least uh, to be proud of, I guess uh, it was a, it was a difficult game. Obviously things thrown out of kilter when Rakitic is suddenly injured in a warm up, which I would assume slightly changes the dynamic of how they play when you've got a player of that kind of class. Um, and I guess the you, without their kind of main playmaker, their best and maybe the best player on the pitch and the most important player on the pitch became Jules Kunde, who was free to kind of bomb forward and, and start things from the back, Jack, and have a real impact on the game. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I think, like you say, with Rakitic coming out of the team, I think that almost certainly changed the formation that they were going to play. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that we would have prepared to play against a 4-3-3 and then found ourselves playing against the 4-2-3-1 um, where the midfielders were just allowing the space um, for Kunde to, to bomb forward out of defence. Um, and the way we were set up, we didn't really have anyone available to press them because we were dropping into a 4-5-1 shape to match the three that they would have um, in, in midfield. And not really having anyone available to get out and press um, Kunde often, I mean, partly this is just about a very, very good team and a team that's very well versed in how to build the ball through the thirds. And um, they were consistently able to pull Antonio out to press Goodelge and then 
move the ball across the right side where Antonio can't get across in time uh, to Kunde, so he can stride across the halfway line. And um, I, I knew he was a good player, but I was surprised by how much quality he had um, because his passing once he got over the halfway line was brilliant. Being able to pick out passes through the lines, switch balls over the top um, to uh, a Campos or Corona on, on, on the left-hand side. And, and the rotation between um, a Campos and Navas worked really well in terms of making sure that they committed uh, for now's out to press Kunde and then that frees Navas and Acampos drives inside of Cresswell and Cresswell's forced to, to come out to press Navas so it opens all of these spaces for them in the final third and um, you can really see how uh, well that functions for them and how key it is for them to get Navas um, on the ball in space and something that we def- definitely have to address going into the second game. You talked about on your on your thread kind of the rewatch thread about how when he stepped up, it forces someone to come out of a shape and opens up that space. Yeah, well, that's what I was just saying. So about for for Niles has to sort of, you can let him progress, but you can only let him progress so far. And he's happy to progress down that channel space. He's not looking to drive inside because effectively what they want to do is to commit your wide player who's dropping off to keep the 2v2. So you've got Navas and Acampos versus Cresswell and Fornals. What you want to achieve if you're Kunde is to get either... Uh, it's Lanzini and Fornals on that side. So you either want to force Lanzini to step out so one of your midfielders can go into that space and, and be free um, to, to cross the ball from that sort of perfect area, really, where you're deep but in line with the corner of the box where you can get some whip on it and get it in behind the defence. Or you want Fornals to be forced to step out where they, you can then play to Navas, who's going to have space and time on the ball because Fornals isn't available to press him. And then if Cresswell does make the decision to come out and press Navas to stop him from being able to cross, then you've got a Campos free um, with space to run at uh, Zuma. So it forces all of these overcompensations or not even overcompensations. It just forces people out of position to deal with what Sevilla are doing and then gets probably their best players going forward into the positions and the areas they want to be in. Just thinking in this, from right in the summer, thinking that Chelsea were strongly linked with Kunde. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and yeah. it's interesting because you, you kind of, the talk around why Zuma was allowed to leave is he wasn't good enough on the ball. And I suppose you can see what Tuchel was looking to replace, what Zuma wasn't yeah. able to do and what he wanted Kunde to come in and do. And I, I guess it's something, that we've talked about our build-up and we've talked about not having a passer and there's alternatives to maybe not having a, a great passer at the back cow and it's someone who comfortable can carry that threat on the ball and we definitely don't have that in our defence at the moment. No, uh, no, not <laughs> at the minute. Definitely not. Um, yeah, yeah, he's, he is just a elite talent and I'd be amazed if he's not linked with even more moves in the summer. Uh, 95% pass completion is just obscene for anywhere on the pitch. Um, Especially when he's playing forward so regularly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Passes forward. Yeah, so his, yeah, 20, 22 of his 25 forward passes were completed as well. So that's 88% completion on forward passing and completed four out of four of his dribble attempts, um, which totaled into four progressive carries. And I think it was also notable that... Um, I mean, to my, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure Campos started out on the left and then they switched him over to the right, presumably when they saw how effective Kunde, uh, not even how effective he was because they know what a good player he is, but how easy it was to engage the likes of Fornals and Cresswell and how much space was then being left in behind. And Campos is someone who is 
um, well-versed in particularly hitting the half spaces and picking up those little pockets of space. So to bring him over there and then uh, you have arguably the best 2v1 situation out there with Navas is like probably one of the best crosses on form in Europe. And then a Campos, someone who is just a real threat in that final third. So yeah, I think smart tactical change from Lopetegui as well. But um, ultimately it is just a product of having an elite young ball carrying centre-back. And yeah, like I say, I wouldn't be surprised to see, well, I was going to say I wouldn't be surprised to see Chelsea go back in for him, but Won't that's down, not yeah. happen. <laughs> <laughs> Walked into that one. Bless them, eh? But there was that kind of 10, 15 minute period, Jack, and I'm sure you said that was probably the worst you'd seen us for quite a while. And it felt like for a team where there's often a lot of plans, the plans and the organisation had gone and it was more panic than anything. There was a uh, real... Um tangible sense of 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 panic in in the mm. squad after after the goal and you could see the the decisions that people are making some people are trying to be very protective and dropping off other people are trying to to press things and not don't have the support um and severe and that's where you see when teams are really really good uh, and and that's what you saw with severe is that stayed very calm uh, and did a very good job of of exploiting that up until the very last bit um and i think we probably did quite a good job of defending our last line in that period but in terms of conceding space and allowing them to hit the final third it was just all the time and we couldn't keep hold of the ball at all um so it was a very concerning uh, period of the game for us but perhaps most pleasingly it didn't continue it it, it lasted about 10-15 minutes and and then we brought Noble on and in that final period of the game we weren't that concerned i don't feel but by severe i think we we managed that quite well i think in some ways the structure looked quite good in terms of creating chances going forwards but we didn't look to be very keen to push too much uh, for an equalizer we were quite happy to to sort of take one nil at that at that point and i think we controlled that period after noble came on quite well it's, it's one thing experience gets you is that ability to react mentally to things i suppose and what we haven't had is a really really high pressure game like that where we've let in a goal, probably letting a goal from a situation we don't expect to let goals in from yeah. either. And we've got quite a young, kind of young team in those kind of leader roles as well. And I guess Sevilla, you know, you don't win a lot of Europa Leagues unless you know how to manage periods of games that are going through your head as well. I think what impressed me most and what's the, another Philip for him was that Ben Rama coming on pushed Sevilla back because of what he did with the ball, Cal. And it was what he did with the ball proactively with a bit of ambition and also just kind of playing the way he does. It was really clever for Moyes if he considered that was going to happen. But definitely that that period of severe kind of dominance and our crazy panic seemed to end when Benarama came on and did one direct forward run at their defence. And they suddenly thought, right, 10 yards deeper back because if we get beaten, we're in. Yeah, I think it is just like you said, there's not much more to it. It's just that directness and sort of we'd allowed them to grow comfortable in, in a game. And you bring someone on who is more than happy to charge at you, whether he's gonna whether he's gonna win that dribble or not, he's gonna do it. Um, and yeah, that just penned them back, um, and I think limited them in terms of. I've, I've not got the graphics for it, but I would imagine their line, if you could get it, their defensive line would, have, like you say, would have been 10, 15 yards back. Um, but it is that management of the game as well, like looking at the. Uh, PPDA, the passes per defensive action, consistently for the first 70 minutes, it was around eight or 10, which is a pretty solid pressing performance. And then that last 15, 20 minutes, it dropped all the way back down to 26, which is is very low. But that's just an experienced team going, you know what, actually, 
we've we're good at going forward, but we've also got some very good defenders, and we're quite happy to just sit in here and and just rather than trying to create shots. They had twenty one shots, only three of them came from seventy minutes onward. So it's just a complete switch of their approach. But knowing that either approach they decide to employ, they can do to great effect, and and it is just decision making and like you say, the experience and know how of how to get through these ties. Um, and, and yeah, they they did it with great effect. But I think yeah, the the final twenty minutes, it would have been easy for us to keel over and just keep getting whipped on the attack. But we switched it up, and um, it's it, yeah, given me good enough reason to look forward to Thursday and think that we are absolutely still in this. We we kept it to one goal. We went toe to toe with them again for the final third of the game, and if we can carry that on in front of the home crowd, then we've got every reason to be excited. I think. I think it was it was almost in a way like watching a, a very very good version of what we'd like to be at times. They did use the whip in a kind of old fashioned way. They know how to defend their box. It's, it's, this is kind of oh they're from Spain. There's glamour there. But actually, they did this. They did the kind of things we do. They 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 know their basics at the back there. Obviously, they had Koundé, who is a you know when you have that level of player, it just it, it helps you approach that. But actually, they were wide. And Munir and Enes Enesiri, I, although I'm pretty sure the co-commentator called him El Mesiri for yeah. the whole game. I don't know. She's going to correct him. Nah, leave him. Leave him. It's fine. Um, but they, it wasn't. It wasn't. You know, you go to Spain, so they must play like Barcelona. They are kind of high-profile West Ham. Yeah, I would agree. Quite similar approach. Quite similar styles. Uh, uh, slower tempo on the ball. Um, and that that is something that you just get with Spanish teams. And I know it's not; they're certainly not like Barcelona, but they do. Um, they they did set up in possession, often getting themselves into more of a sort of three-one-four-two shape and using Torres and Jordan and, and rotating the ball really nicely, um, where it looks like it's happening really slowly, but it's all very nicely coached. And, and you've got these lovely passing patterns that draw. I mean, you could. Uh, countless times where we got drawn eight men across to one flank and then it's just two simple passes that are played not like really rapidly so as to freak anyone out you just cycle the ball across the defense and oh we've got a 3v2 on the opposite flank you know it's that sort of very um sort of suck you in slowly approach onto one side and then move the ball out to the other side which which worked really well for them but like you say um a confident defensive side want the ball in wide areas one across the ball into the box not dissimilar to, to how we set up before we kind of oh sorry Cal. no i was just going to say that i think Moyes would love to have a Kenya in his team <laughs> the, the yeah, left back that Moyes would absolutely love that guy <laughs> Crossing on point, defensively on point, but with the mobility that Cresswell doesn't have. And yeah, it, it would be unreal if we had him. And yeah, shout out to Navas on the other side as yeah, well. Yeah, I was about to say, typically, typically, I mean, John, Johnson had a very good game, was kind of my man. I think I think Jack's man that much as well. But I, you, what you don't associate with Jesus Navas from his time at City is that block, an attacking player at City in a kind of tiki-taka type of style that they were going at the time. Now suddenly he's throwing his body on the line in front of goal. Like like Craig Dawson would. And it's, it's a real shift of what your expectations are. Before I, before I move on from past Sevilla to future Sevilla and what we're looking at, I do just want to ask you quickly, Cal. Um, I, I think it's N Nasiri. I've never known how to say the name. And in fact, you know, what, what you're looking for with a commentator is to help you on that. And obviously they got it even further wrong. Um, what, what were your thoughts on kind of him? He's been linked to us in the press semi-regularly for 18 months. He's, suddenly, he's kind of gone out of the team because Rafa Mir's their top scorer, I believe, suddenly on the bench yeah. and Nesri's back in. Does Which he is exactly why I would say it's staying clear. It's exactly that. Right, spend 40 million on a player that's being kept out of the side by Rafa Mir, no matter how good the form is, I just wouldn't. I wouldn't go there. 
he had a great season last season, but I just, it, yeah, he's, he's, I do not think he's the striker for us. He's, if we'd have paid what they wanted for last summer, then I think we'd all be regretting it right now, personally. Alan Mark too? Quite no, possibly. Different kind of player. Kyle, but I don't think player. he would have been anywhere. Uh, similar impact, I think. I yeah, don't think it would have been I mean, a success yeah. story. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, rather, he's not playing player. the right type of striker is what I mean, rather than the, the same type of player. No, I think he, I think he is the right kind of striker. I just think oh, anyone really? that's benched by um, <laughs> someone that can't get in the team at Wolves, um, it's a bit of a problem, especially if he's valued at over forty million quid. Red flag, which are important things to note uh, in any walk of life. Um, so we go in on Thursday. Possibly, it's, I don't think we've had news yet of where Antonio's injury uh, Cresswell's injury we're not sure and Bowen not even making the squad at the weekend apparently Bowen is uh, very unlikely according to the most recent article I think which was Evening Standard and mm-hmm. um, uh, Antonio's didn't look so bad to me at all and they didn't think it was bad either in the standard um, and Cresswell not so sure I think Cresswell's looks worse um, than Antonio's what, what are you doing to adapt then in, in this game Jack at least let's I suppose hypothetically first with Antonio, then consider without Antonio as well. Um, what are you doing in that game? Change the options. You haven't got these key players. Some parts of it didn't work against Sevilla before. I guess I where think, you're going with it. I think I, I think there are, there are good reasons uh, to to deploy uh, a four one four one again. I don't think we'll see a four two three one from 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 Sevilla again. Uh, I think Rakitic does come back in. Delaney's back, I think as well. So there there are reasons to go with a with a with a four one four one again, um, it would make more sense with the team that Sevilla usually play um, rather than the four two three one that we saw in the first leg. Um, but I would also be keen to, to to press a little bit more. I think you know the, the times where we were a little bit more direct and, and affected their tempo were, were were times where we were were at our best in that game. And rotations in the final third was something that that really helped us more movement and, uh, between you know switching slots with each other in the final third really really helped. Um, so I think you know if we play Antonio, maybe something like a four three three would be would be um, and just match up and and, and look to to play at, at our tempo against them at home um, and without Antonio it's difficult to say because I think assuming there's no Antonio and no Bowen then you probably have to go for something like the 4-3-3 we used um, against Villa with Yarmolenko central um, and players that are going to be able to rotate um, those three positions uh, comfortably and, and almost definitely means that you'd need to play Ben Rama on, on the left flank as someone who's going to be able to, to, to add that sort of pace and directness and how are you feeling Cal on that do you, do you any optimism well obviously there'll be some optimism but yeah of genuine <laughs> <laughs> no I'm excited man it's 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 going to be a great night it's 1-0 we're at home we didn't get blown away by them if 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 it was a 1-0 and we'd been battered I'd be more fearful but we created enough opportunities like I said earlier to draw at least um, so yeah assuming we put in a similar performance and score one of them then then it's all to play for, really. And I think everyone's going to be up for it. I think with the addition of Rakitic and stuff, Rice has tended to do well against... Well, he does well against everyone, but he always seems to do well against really good opposition. It's like it's like he steps up and thinks, right, I've, this is a, I've got to step up here. And I think he, more than anyone, will be motivated to carry us through to the next round. Um, so, yeah, I'm just really excited, really. I guess that's why you you get in these European games, a chance to take someone like Sevilla back to your own stadium under the lights in the evening. 
it'll be a big and memorable occasion regardless, Jack. Exactly. And I think actually that's one of the reasons the tie was quite good because I think it's tough for Sevilla coming away to a team that's in, not not in this particular moment in brilliant form, but over the last two years and some of the best form the club's had in, in recent memory. Um, there's a real feel-good factor around the place. We're generally very confident at home and um, and you've got that added thing of, I mean, it's sort of like when we had the last game at Upton Park, you felt that we weren't, Man United were playing very well at the time, but because of the occasion and how up for it everyone was, it was a very difficult fixture for them to come up, come away to to, to play against a team that's it's such a big game for us. And it, similar for Sevilla, I think it's a really tough thing to come away and play against a team that are playing really well at the moment. And it's a massive fixture in the history of the club. Um, I think it's a very difficult um, tie for them. And And one of the things you can really hope for is that they will try and set the tone and, and if they do try and set the tone and can't get their rhythm going, then that's where you can really exploit teams. And what we've done really effectively against Liverpool and Chelsea this season at home is allow a big team to come, try and set their rhythm and disrupt it, and then they panic. Um, hopefully we can achieve something similar. I guess it is one of those very rare occasions where even if we lose, I don't feel like you're going to get lots of people going home angry. And it's a club where you didn't generally find someone who's pretty angry after a game, even when we've won, to be honest with you. Um, I'm sure there would be someone coming out of Villa screaming rage. Um, but it's one of those kind of rare occasions for us where you feel like there'll be a pride involved. And it is, it makes it a formidable place, I guess, because you suddenly have everyone backing and you don't get the groans as much as well. There's going to be nerves, but I feel like if every, it feels like every West Ham fan has probably embraced the positives around it and just kind of taking the negatives are almost a positive because you don't get that pain if you're not there. Yeah. And there's going to be a pyrotechnic display that's severe and never seen. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, all the glitz and glamour of a golden Sullivan wedding. To be fair as well, I'll say they don't, um, obviously I don't want to jinx it, but they don't travel well. They've only won one away game this year since January. Well, two, but one of them was against Real Zaragoza, which is a cup game and that doesn't really count. Um, so yeah, you have to go all the way back to the third of Jan in a win, one nil away win against Cadiz, which yeah, make of that what you are. So yeah, yeah. reasons to be positive. And I actually think like what you were just describing is one of the reasons why the tie is good for us because if if we'd lost one nil away against a team that we were expected to beat and we're now bringing them back, there'd be huge pressure on it for us. But we've lost one nil away against Sevilla, expectations extremely low, and everyone just wants us to go and give our best, which I'm absolutely sure we will. Mm-hmm. Kind of one of my favourite times to be a West Ham fan, these weird little kind of moments of pride in the face of I guess some level of adversity, but not, kind of almost not giving a, a damn uh, and just getting on with it. Um, well, not giving a damn and getting on with it. It's probably time to leave this podcast behind then, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank nice. you as ever for joining us. We will be back next week. Um, but until then, we shall see you next time. Good night. Right, so we're here in the offices of a late, late show with the host of a late, late show, James Corden. Hi. Big West Ham fan. Yes. <laughs> big knees up Mother Brown, man. Yeah. Yeah, I'm regularly on the general discussion page. There's always someone who's got some information, so I love it. Yeah, yeah. it's great. Yes, it's Find excitement it. surrounded by imminent disappointment. <laughs> that's, what it, that's what it mostly is. Get on the forum at kumb.com. Come on, you irons. <laughs> <laughs>